Yes, we are back with another very special episode, a stay-at-home self-quarantine episode of the Brando Cast. And my guest today, he needs no introduction, people, because there are two things out in the world that will give you maximum Michael Debar. First of all, nearly every single day of the week, you can hear this man. On Sirius XM Channel 21, it's Little Steven's Underground Garage and the mandatory Michael Daybar program. That's on every day from 9 to midnight, East uh, West Coast time rather, and always in the morning from 5 to 8. But more importantly, after the show is over, I need every single person to go to Amazon Prime and I need you to buy or rent a Michael Daybar who do you want me to be? The fantastic new documentary made by a friend of the show, J. Elvis Weinstein. So today, of course, we are talking to none other than the 26th Marquis de Bar and a man who has been using his vibe as currency since he was eight years old. I give you MDB. Well, now you got to give me currency. <laughs> now you have to give me money now. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's the way it works. They give me a thousand dollars to do this, you guys. I'm going to send it to charity, obviously. You know, Michael, I think in the city of Los Angeles, I've always said that when you wake up every day, you have to make one decision. Are you going to walk Santa Monica and La Brea? Are you going to work the bar at the Peninsula Hotel? You know what I mean? No, we all the have. <laughs> no, the first thing I think of is what am I going to wear? <laughs> I don't think where I'm going to be. I know where I'm going to be. I'm going to be in my house, you know, and I know I'll wear a black mask when I go out on the street, which is very rare. So things have changed, Brendan. There's a lockdown. There's a lockdown in the underground. Uh, you know, so I'm not, I'm not, I don't go anywhere. I certainly don't go to La Brea. Hollywood to me is toxic. Every car on the streets has an agent. <laughs> you know, well, you that's know, the way it feels. Well, you know, you're right. But you know, the, the crazy thing about Hollywood, not to talk about the way things are changing, but the influx, I have been told that the influx of young people moving here to be TikTok and YouTube stars mirrors any wave of young people that have been coming here before, whether it's well, rock. I, you know, yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, in the 30s, uh, you know, you, every every young man and woman that, that was vaguely cute would come to Hollywood. <laughs> you know? And I mean, vaguely cute which is a great band name um you know so i don't know man i mean hollywood has always been the magnet for anybody that thought they were fabulous you know period in whatever field you could be an attorney you could be a dentist you'd rather be a dentist in hollywood than cleveland right oh well no bad vibes against cleveland (laughs) cleveland rocks but as you say it's people who think that they're fabulous well that's right but if you think you're fabulous guess what is that half you, the work? You are fabulous. That's all the work, <laughs> you know? I mean, if you believe in yourself, then you will be believed in. That's been my whole vibe, you know, with the movie. I mean, I I think confidence is, is the greatest trait you can have. As long as it's sincere and it's not a narcissistic, egoic description, that it is really a spiritual thing, that if you think you're good and, and clever and smart, um, then work it you know, and make it work for you. The thing is, if you're good at something, you're going to make somebody happy Ah, rather than yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm a good actor, then, and I know it, then I'm going to make that movie, that TV show enjoyable. It's completely the other way around. 
from the normal, you know, I want to be on the cover of whatever magazine. I want this. I want that. I want to marry Angelina Jolie. Well, maybe not Angelina Jolie, but you know what I mean? I mean, you know, I can get anything I want because I'm great. That's not the point. The point greatness is giving. That's mm. the great gift of talent is just that you give it away. When you were in drama school, did they teach confidence? Did they teach giving? You can't teach it. You can't teach it. Okay. No. You can't teach it. You know, you, I mean, nobody can teach you how to be confident in, in yourself because that's an oxymoron. You know, mm -hmm. it's hyperbole. I mean, the thing is, is that you have to believe that. How do you do that? Well, you do that by doing good things, even if you don't want to. And, and after a period of time <laughs> of being generous in spiritually, then you uh, adopt that person. That person becomes you. You know, it's better to, you know, to give than to receive is the key to being a star, believe it or not. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, and this is coming from someone, people, who has been an artist uh, for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. What would it be like? It would be over 60 years that I've been doing, you know, this sort of stuff. You know, I started doing commercials when I was eight years old, and I'm now 72, the other, you know, the other side of Club 27, which I think is spectacular. <laughs> you know, I belong to Club 72. <laughs> <laughs> but you look, but you look incredible. I mean, you, you are, you are the picture of health. I mean, you, uh, your vibe, as you say in the movie, you've been using your vibe as currency since you were eight, but you are, you're the gold standard for, you know, my, your my parents are just a little bit older than you and they don't look anything like you. It was interesting. I watched a movie with my wife uh, last night called A Little Romance starring Diane Lane and Sir Lawrence Olivier. Mm -hmm. And it was way back seventies. And she's a young, it was her first movie. And Sir Lawrence Olivier was playing this really old guy brilliantly. When I looked the movie up, because I, I adored it, I thought it was brilliant, and I looked at Wikipedia, and Solange Olivier was 71 at the time, and, and he was playing this ancient guy, and I thought, wow, I'm so glad I've eaten so many vegetables, <laughs> and that I quit heroin so early. <laughs> I thought, oh, yeah, good, yeah, good, good on you, MTV, you know. But um, I tell you what does make you feel kind of ancient is, the, is this lockdown business, you know, because you can't yeah. go out and mingle. Yes. You know, and I would, I would put on an outfit to go to Ralph's. <laughs> I, mean, you know, I would talk to anybody and I do talk to anybody and people that come up and go, Hey Murdoch, Hey, you, you give me a picture with you, like killing somebody <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> and I would do it and talk. It, it's a beautiful thing to, to, you know, have relationships with strangers, which I've spent most of my life doing. Uh, which is well chronicled in the movie. Let me just say that um, I've been a member of the Hollywood YMCA for the last uh, 28, 29 years. And just the loss of that in my life, wow. I've put on 20 pounds. I'm not going to lie. I've, I've, cause I played basketball uh, at the Y three days a week, competitive basketball, super fun, great camaraderie, great people. And, and uh, just a, 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 a great way for me to work out. And that has been the one big thing missing in my life uh, during the, the quarantine, but May also I say just something about that. Go ahead. About exercise because yes. everybody has put on 10 pounds that I yeah. know at least. <laughs> now here's the vibe about that. What you just said is preventing you from doing something else. Mm. The best time I ever had, the YMCA, it was friends, it was together, we, so I can't do that. So I will eat bread and chocolate. <laughs> you know, you're making an excuse out of this thing. Understood. What Understood. you've got to do is get a stationary bike. 
Ah. Get on that bike. They're not expensive. You get on the bike and you you absolutely do an hour a day on that bike. You have to substitute something. You can't just sit around and go, well, you know, I put on 20 pounds. You know, the next sense is, but it's not really my fault. (laughs) Understood. But on on, on the plus side, I will say this, though, the plus side of that during this quarantine, um, the ability to do this podcast and to uh, reach out to people around the country and have yeah. these conversations has been an absolute delight because before the quarantine, I was doing the show uh, at the Zappa family office in uh, Larchmont. And uh, then it was just trying to convince people to come to Larchmont on a Saturday afternoon. So the the plus side of the quarantine is uh, I've been quite busy uh, doing this. And also Amit and I have a show on uh, Sirius XM Channel 106 uh, that is Rock Tales uh, with me and Amit Zappa, as people know. And it's a wonderful show. But the thing that I'm trying to tell you is you can do this after yes. this thing is over. That yes. you, This is a great lesson. This doesn't mean you have to stop and go back to the, the Zappa residence. You can do, your, you know, Brendan's residence um, and reach more people. And in in some funky way, you know, with the documentary being so successful, it's, it's so successful because people want product. And yeah. they are in their homes. And if it had come out in the theaters i don't believe it would have had the impact that it's had and and that and i'm very happy about that but the point is you know even though the pa- pandemic this dreadful virus this, this vicious murderer you know is is floating around um you can still do what you want to do which is reach people because like, i can tell that you adore to talk to people and so do oh, yeah. i yeah well I, let me just say the, the great thing about the quarantine my favorite way to relax at night is to watch rock and roll documentaries uh, I love documentaries in general, but I am a nerd for rock docs. And that's how I, I found, I mean, I obviously I know who you are and I'm very familiar with your work. But when that came out and I knew that Jay Elvis was involved in it, it was such a great antidote for this very confusing and challenging time because the movie is so life affirming. I mean, for me, uh, the title is who do you want me to be? But my the thing that I take away from it is it's a Michael Day Bar. Be who you are, and I believe that your son Nick says that in, in the movie as well. That that's something that you taught him was just the importance of being who you are and bringing your true self to the world. And that really was the thing that that hit me the hardest about that movie. Yeah, I think you've got to cast yourself, um, you know, and look upon it as a movie, really, because all of the different things I've done have been to protect myself. I, as you probably know, you've seen, the, I did not have a mother or father. So therefore, I had to really learn very quickly how to, how to parent myself. And that phrase is like a horror movie. <laughs> you know I mean? So therefore, you create characters through which to get through that particular vibe, you know, and because I've done so many different things, I've had to be so many different people. But that journey, that journey has made me realize, well, that isn't me. That isn't me. It's literally, I've gone through all of these different vibes to get to, you know, some degree of acceptance of, of self, you know, which is what we're all after spiritually. So, mm-hmm. we, you know, so therefore we can say, I, when we say, I love you, then you know who that I is. Yes. You know, and that's been the journey. And that was the name of the movie because it's a quest. The whole, that's why people dig it because you can see that he's, he knows what he, he needs but it drugs get in the way three chords chuck berry get in the way you know things get in the way yeah and uh 
and addiction gets in the way and all of those different things you know try and turn you down the wrong road but uh, you know i got there and i'm very happy about it and nick you know my son sussing that out from the from you know what i've been through is just a, the greatest gift a father could give a son and the great and alternatively <laughs> right yeah my son would feel good man you know well isn't it important for for when that moment in life when we can look at our parents as people rather than these sort of mythic older characters i don't know darling Okay. Oh, know. fair enough. Right, fair I enough. No, and- that's the point. I have no idea. Mum and dad, I don't know anything about mum and dad. Yeah, but I, But in a way, not have, you know, fight, reaching that ability over the course of my life has made my love deeper. I respect it more. You, I mean, mothers and fathers are there, like the garden, like the house, like the waste paper basket, whatever it is. You know, it, it exists, but none of that existed for me because I was in boarding schools from eight yeah. to sixteen, man. Yeah. You know, and I never went home in the vacation period, so I would be alone in these Gothic castles, you know, in wow. England, like Wuthering Heights meets I don't know what, some some sort of nunnery, right? <laughs> you, know, I, you know, and I would read everything in that, those massive libraries and i would read aeschylus and shakespeare and lord byron and rambeau and all of the great writers krishnamurti all of this you and i was like nine and i you know and i became my own parent you know i taught myself because i was useless at math and science and no idea what any of that meant but i history english when i learned latin you know I could read in Latin, which, you know, is pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I end up in velvet trousers singing rock and roll, but I can speak Latin. I mean, that's certainly yeah, an interesting sort of vibe. Well, let me bring it back to the Brando cast here. One of the very, I think, poignant moments of the movie is when you basically said that your mother did give you one gift, and that was the love of a few artists, especially the artists that we're going to talk about today on the Brando cast. So, without further ado, Elvis Aaron Presley was an American singer, musician, and actor. He's regarded as one of the most significant cultural icons of the 20th century and is often referred to as the king of rock and roll. His sexually provocative performance style, combined with a potent mix of musical influences across color lines, made Elvis the best-selling solo music artist of all time. He was commercially successful in many genres, including pop, country, R&B, adult contemporary, and gospel. And again, Michael, I thought that was such a, a very interesting moment of the movie when you said that your mother gave you the gift of Elvis. Elvis and Billie Holiday. Like Billie Holiday, when, when I knew her in my late teens, when I finally got around to, you know, to be hanging out with her, she was schizophrenic, so she, it, things would come and go. But she was always really into artistry. She loved, uh, and I think, like a lot of people, lived her life through those artists. I mean, anyway, she wanted to be a blues singer and all of these things, but she was crazy, you know. And But being introduced to Elvis really really changed me there's only been two or three people and elvis is one of them clearly because i was so obsessed with america Mm -hmm. and if anybody is captain america it would be elvis um at the same time when i was very young i was also listening to arthur crudup 
Big Bill Brunsey, Lightning Hopkins, Sonny Boy Williamson, Lead Billy, Robert Johnson, Muddy Waters. So I was very schooled in the blues when I was very young because I discovered them in the archives of this library of these schools. And I would listen and read about the oppression, slavery and sharecroppers and the disgraceful, you know, thing that we're dealing with still, for God's sake. So Elvis was very much influenced by that and by the last genre that you mentioned, which was gospel. Elvis was a gospel singer to me. The most beautiful songs he made with RCA Victor in the earlier days of his career, he did with the Jordanaires, which was a five-piece um, male voices. So he loved singing gospel choir. He would go out there and do Don't Be Cruel, then he would go back until three in the morning, he'd be singing gospel songs. You know, that, that's, that to me is very indicative of who that person was. But who that person, you know, became as a representation of America was this, you know, jet black sexy guy who was banned and only filmed from the waist up. You know, that, that in itself changed the culture. The fact that they wouldn't shoot him from the waist down. Rock and roll music is made for... <laughs> the waist down. <laughs> it's made for the waist down. It, you, you know, as Miss Pamela, my ex-wife, would say, rock and roll's heart beats below your waist. <laughs> and Elvis Presley did that. Also, he could interpret songs more beautifully than anybody else. Before him, you had the crooners, fantastic Sinatra, unbelievable singer, Bing, all these guys. and But the king um, uh, superseded Bing, <laughs> you know, and, and just became this cultural phenomena. And like James Dean, he made teenagers uh, important. Because before the king and before Jimmy Dean, you had kids, children and you had adults you teenagers didn't have any choice in their lives but they sure did when rock and roll came along and when james dean came along it gave teenagers a voice and elvis is way more important than jailhouse rock yeah understood you know the the one question i have for you guys i want to hear your personal answer about this those of us who are rock fans we have grown up hearing about mick keith clapton jeff beck even Richie Blackmore, those British kids who loved American rhythm and blues and just straight up blues music. Why? I, it's, it's just how did American teens miss the template that was literally down the highway from them? Why were you Brits so much better at, at interpreting that music? Well, I don't know if they're better, but they were, they were certainly the first young white people to do it um, in, in London. There are two reasons. One is a spiritual reason and the other is, is merely um, musical. But I think that the majority of rock and roll stars came from a working class situation. That means they understood oppression. Let me tell you, England, the working class was so threatened by the upper class. Because if you think about it, the feudal system where you had a castle, you had a guy who owned the castle, and around the castle there were land, and they were farms, and farmers would live on that farm. And they would work 20 hours a day for that guy in that castle. And they would give them most of the money that was earned from what they were growing. Now, that never changed. And it still hasn't changed. It hasn't, it's getting worse, especially here in the United States. You've got 1% of the, you know, this is the old Bernie vibe, which I, we all knew before Bernie came out, but that 1% rich, everybody else is eating shit, you know. And that's what it was then. And what happened was those young kids, Ronnie Wood, 
Rod Stewart, Brian Jones, all of those guys, Mick, Keith, of course, uh, but so many more, you know, Jimmy, so many more, all of them, all of them latched onto this music, which was the, you know, made by sharecroppers' sons, or in some cases, sharecroppers. <laughs> you know, I mean, Robert Johnson and all that. The blues seemed to permeate something that had both oppression and the blues. The blues was about sexuality more than anything else and God. Mm-hmm. That's what the blues wow. is about. It's either about the deification of your life or the absolute sexuality of life, sensuality of life. That's all they had was dancing, fucking, and praying. Right? Sounds good, right? So that's rock and roll. So that's how that happened. And then what happened was these guys became so good at it, at the blues. You know, Brian Jones started, started uh, he called himself, I think, Elmore something or other. I can't remember, but he adored Elmore James, the slide guitar player. And when he began and the blues began in London, they were on sitting on stools. It wasn't Jumping Jack Flash. It was, the, it was playing like jazz guys, but this was blues. It was just another genre. And we're talking about Alexis Corner and John Mayall and Long John Baldry and all of the early origins. Georgia Gomelsky would own these clubs and it was real blues. And they would sit on stores and play. But suddenly Chuck came along, Keith came along, and Mick put on a jumpsuit. <laughs> and things changed. Jumping Jack's Clash came out of Sonny Boy Williamson's ass. I mean, come on, man. It's unbelievable, that story. You know, the whole notion of the origins of rock and roll are very spiritually based because people were escaping, escaping the unbelievable hypocrisy of the British class system, right? And that rings a bell with people who are oppressed. And they were. Ronnie Wood was born on a barge on the River Thames. Unbelievable. The gypsy. Wow. So, you know, so these people went through a lot of stuff, man, you know, a lot of stuff. And I knew it because I was at drama school in the mid 60s. I went to school, you know, with Stevie Marriott. I would go to auditions with Stevie Marriott. I know all, all of that stuff. When I did To Sew With Love, I was like 17 with Sydney Poitier. We were doing this movie. It was a massive movie. And we were in the East End of London, which is where rock and roll really came from. You know, and if you really look at it closely, rock and roll is so allied with British gangsterism. Mm. You know, the Cray twins, all the managers, all of these guys, Peter Grant, Don Arden, Sharon Arden's father. Yes. Right. They're all bent, as they used to say in England. You know, so rock and roll and gangsterism had a real formula. You know, you know, Andrew Lou Goldham speaks very, very beautifully and articulately about what we're discussing here. But this is the this is the like the inside information of the birth of rock and roll, because it was also really, really uh, these kids were slaves to these managers. Yeah, and had no money at all, and all their publishing was taken away. Again, the great British system, you know, they they were the you know the owners of the cotton fields were the managers of rock and roll bands. Unbelievable. Uh, Bowie tells a great story about the first time he saw the Rolling Stones opening up for Little Richard, uh, and he was just blown away by Mick's hair and his attitude on stage. Can you share maybe some of your earliest live experiences uh, as a young guy in drama school in London? Yeah, I'm 16 I, and 17. And then after the movie, we had access because we were stars. You know, those young kids, there was, you know, 1967 was the biggest movie of the year, right? And we're in L- London. Yardbirds, Terry mm. Reed, 
Chris Farlow, The Animals, The Nashville Teens, Georgie Fame, Zoot Money, you name it. I mean, people that you haven't even heard of, you know, like were, were stars, Clapton, Clapton is God, you know, The Yardbirds, The Yardbirds, The Stones, all of that. I saw all of those people in those clubs, 200 people. I went to school with Mitch Mitchell. Mitch Mitchell was Hendrix's drummer. So he goes to me one day, we're doing ballet class, you know, we're doing ballet thing. And he turns to me and goes, Ian Michael, do you want to go, sir? I've got, um, you know, I'm going to play with this black dude. He's like, he's, he's left-handed and he's got velvet trousers and he plays the blues and you've got to come down and see him. And, and lo and behold, I, I go down to the marquee that night and, and my life changed. Right, Sir Hendrix. So I saw a lot of people play, but the the real, you know. But I was an actor. I was at the Royal Shakespeare Company, the younger Royal Shakespeare Company, were doing Macbeth and all of that and Hamlet and stuff. And uh, I went to see the Faces in 1970. Yeah, it was called the Queen Elizabeth Hall in London, and I just went, "Oh man, this is outrageous. This is just unbelievable." You know, Rod in a pink satin suit with a bar on stage, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know the, oh my god you know it's almost like come you know it's almost like finding the ten commandments you know but they had spiky hair on them you know it was an amazing feeling that was one thing the other thing was the audience you know was, if you can get an audience to feel like that i want to be able i want to be one of those guys that get those you know those girls smiling and those guys you know looking up at you going i wish i was up there god damn it you know why i'm, I'm a f- Fucking carpenter! What the hell am I doing? I want to be a goddamn beast. Oh yeah, he's great, honey. Yeah, really digging him. Really good. Fuck this, goddamn. You know. <laughs> so, but the girls are like, you know, having multiple orgasms listening to, you know, wake up, Maggie, off them something say to you. You know, I mean, they, yeah. come on. You know, I mean, you're gonna have Rod or you're gonna have a carpenter. Which one? Where are you, where are you gonna go? Who had more fun than Ronnie and Rod? <laughs> during nobody, that period of time. Nobody, well nobody because you know jagger was this uh, sort of nereif you know he was a you know he was a, a a ballet star really and this incredible singular vibe and and keith was just in there the whole thing was about the stones you know they really believed in the music and mick was that siphon you know that get brought it to us through this music because if you look at study keith keith is by charlie listen to that bass drum you mm-hmm. know He's not out there going, here I am, Keith Richards. He got a cigarette dangling and he's keeping that groove, you know, and that in itself was a miracle. And then Mick being jumping Jack Flash in the middle, it was a beautiful thing. Um, so, you know, that was a different kind of fun. But the faces were like a gang and all great rock bands, I think. It was once described to me great by John Taylor, you know, when I did Power Station and John Taylor was such a sweetheart, Andy Taylor from Duran and and he, I said, what is the secret to Duran's success? And he said to me, we all wear the same shoes. I said, oh, my God. Wow. The Beatles. Yeah. If you study the origins of rock and roll bands, they've all got the same fucking shoes on. And I thought, oh, I see. That's the uniform. High heels became the uniform of rock and roll bands, which is so symbolic on a, on a sort of a sexual level. You know, that these guys were pruning sex objects. You didn't have that before the rock and roll in yeah. England. You know? Yeah. And uh, quick- Elvis, I think, began that, that transgender thing. You know, I think that whole feminism, androgyny, Elvis was wearing eye makeup from 1955. Quick tangent before I bring it back to Elvis. I was in the crowd at Live Aid. Oh, my God. 
I was there with my father was living in the Palace Hotel in Philadelphia at the time. So he got great tickets from the concierge and I was in high school. So I made my dad and we were repairing our relationship after a messy divorce. I made my dad get there for the start of the day and we stayed until the very end. And, and so I vividly remember that performance because I remember your, your coat. Yeah, because the the Live Aid stage was was a messy. It wasn't a modern, clean, beautiful big uh, backdrops or or a jumbotron. It was a messy conglomeration of equipment and people and stuff. And you guys didn't have too much to play with on the stage, but your coat helped you to pop. Yeah, uh, you know. And because I was a rock fan, I knew that that there had been a transition made with that. That is very well chronicled uh, in the movie, Who Do You Want Me To Be? But uh, God, what a day for me and what a day for you. Interesting day, you know, replacing a guy's irreplaceable. Um, I remember somebody said, well, you know, Michael, listen, yeah, a manager or an agent or somebody said when, they were, when it was all going down in the beginning and they said, you know, Robert Palmer, big shoes, man, big shoes. And I, and I thought about that for a second and I said, you know, I've got my own shoes. <laughs> And and from that on, it was okay, man. You know, I I made millions and fuck this shit. <laughs> That's a great. That is, oh my god, we're in rock school with a Michael Daybar. Elvis was born in Tupelo, Mississippi, on January eighth, nineteen thirty-five. But his family relocated to Memphis, Tennessee, when he was thirteen. His music career began in Memphis in nineteen fifty-four, when the legendary Sun Records producer Sam Phillips worked with Presley on songs like "That's All Right" and "Blue Moon of Kentucky." And this was an effort to bring the sound of African American music to a wider audience. Phillips is reported to have said, "If I could find a white man who had the Negro sound and the." Negro feel, I can make a billion dollars. However, this blend of styles made it difficult for Presley's music to find radio airplay. Many country music disc jockeys would not play it because Presley sounded too much like a black artist, and none of the R&B stations would touch Elvis because he sounded too much like a hillbilly. This unique blend of music came to be known as Rockabilly, an uptempo, backbeat-driven fusion of country music and rhythm and blues. One fun thing about that, the night of Live Aid, because we were living in the Palace Hotel, a lot of the stars were staying at the palace and then across the street i think the ritz carlton was across the street i don't know where you guys were staying in philadelphia but uh i you know, slept I, in mick jagger's room okay so i vividly remember when jagger got back to the hotel around two or three in the morning because we our room was over the pool so i as a young kid i'm looking down in the pool and i'm watching all these you know all of my heroes in one place, you know, congregating with each other late at night. And I, I remember when Jagger came back to the hotel because there were kids and young folks outside the hotel and they just went crazy. It was the only time of the night that there was like a disruption. And it was when Jagger arrived <laughs> at the Palace Hotel. Yeah, I was on a couch with Bob Dylan, <laughs> Keith Richards, Tina Turner, Jagger and Don Johnson. And we were all sitting on this couch, and I thought, Michael, how the fuck did you get on this couch? <laughs> what strange magic thing happened that make you sit next to Tina Turner while chatting with a very, uh, shall we say, uh, inebriated bunch of icons? Yeah. Which is a great band name. 
<laughs> a bunch and, of icons? No, inebriated icons. <laughs> and they're just instrumentalists. It's a really great record. Um, but to see Tina, man, you know, who is my absolute favorite singer of all time, mm-hmm. in many ways, you know, mm-hmm. like in the juke joints and that, the groove, James Brown, that, that kind of, that's my favorite music, or the soul music. But it was an incredible feeling, but we were always separated. That whole pool thing lasted 20 minutes because there was okay. too much shit going on, you know. Uh, to, when I say that, a lot of people were, you know, um, very excited to see the people that they've adored all their lives. But for me, the whole thing was a dream because three days before that, I was in Marshall, Texas with Don. And he was doing a movie and I was just hanging out and I got a call saying, come to New York, you know, and I did. And I came to New York and they gave me the record and they took Robert's voice off. And I flew to London that night on the Concord to meet with Andy Taylor. I went straight to a studio, no sleep, waited eight hours for Andy Taylor to arrive, who arrived in a billow of marijuana smoke and two bodyguards. He's a little guy, you know. Yes. And he goes to the control thing and he presses the thing, saying, okay, go on then, Michael, sing, you know. And I'd set it up, get it on. I did a verse and a chorus, and he hit that and said, let's go shopping. (laughs) Well, that's your, get it on is your wheelhouse. Yeah, get it on is tattooed on my ass. You know, you know what we did with get it on. I I did this because they were all coked up. These kids, you know, this band because they were all, uh, you know, hugely successful young men, and they were having a time of their lives. And I was like a couple of years sober. So my my thing <laughs> was, I had get it off laminates made. Uh huh. Mm. And I would give it to, and this is terrible to bring up today with, you know, the equality of the sexes and all of this stuff. And we are equal. We are all equal, equal with the trees too, by the way. So I would wear laminate, we'd get it off and give it to the bodyguards and they would go and find gorgeous girls and give it the laminate. And on the laminate was the name of the suite at the hotel. And that's, that's a, you know, dreadful. I know it's dreadful. It's also <laughs> rock and roll, you know, and I, I don't stand for it. I don't stand by it. I'm just talking rock and roll fucking history. So don't give me a hard time out there. You know, <laughs> this is 40 years ago. So, you know, things have changed and I've changed and we've all changed. Thank God. But at the time, fun. Well, I think David Lee Roth had a had a just a PA who was who was largely in charge of finding women in the audience each night, and then walking out into the crowd and saying, "Hey, would you like to meet Mister Mr. Roth later?" Yeah, it's not exactly the most original thing in the world because I'm sure you know Muddy Waters did the same thing. You know, I mean, it's uh, you know if, if you're up on stage and you've got thirty beautiful women in a juke joint, um, you know, you're going to send somebody out there and go, you know. Th- the third on the left in the green skirt, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it just comes with the territory as it were, if you're part of the pod. But, um, the vibe of it all live, it was an amazing feeling because I was with these greats and I was so in awe of so many brilliant artists up there. And it was a fantastic feeling. And I enjoyed every single second of it, you know, and I just flew around that stage. Bill Graham was an asshole. Um, you know, uh, and you know, Andy's amp blew up and we couldn't, you know, get it right. See, when you say it was a a fucked up stage, of course it was because it was a circular thing. There was a band behind you on the circle and then the whole thing would turn around and there was a band, you had three songs each. It was a mess, you know, and out of that mess came the amp blowing up and, and, um, you know, Andy was just a brilliant guitar player, you know. I cannot tell you what great musicians they were. Tony Thompson? 
Oh yeah. my God! You know, yeah. Bowie, you know, used it. Tony was amazing. I mean, his bass drum would kick me in the ass every night, in every way, metaphysically and physically. I mean, it's just amazing. You know, John, brilliant. So we were ready to rock, but we couldn't because the amp. So he's screaming and yelling, and I'm just grinning my ass off. You know, I've just put on my eye makeup. I feel great, and uh, <laughs> I feel great. And then finally, we get to do it. You know, and it was beautiful. It's just so much fun. I don't even remember it. I remember just levitating. Yeah. Well, for uh, for me, it's a it's a it's a very special day and uh, and one that I will never forget. In 1955, RCA Victor acquired Presley's contract from Sun in a deal arranged by Colonel Tom Parker. Parker would then manage Elvis for more than two decades. Presley's first RCA single, Heartbreak Hotel, was released in January of 1956 and became a number one hit in the U.S. with a series of successful television appearances and chart-topping records. Presley became the leading figure of the newly popular sound of rock. His first motion picture, and this is something I want to talk to uh, Michael about, Love Me Tender, was released in November of 56. Though he was not top billed, the film's original title, The Reno Brothers, was changed to capitalize on the success of Love Me Tender, which had already hit the top of the charts. Elvis would go on to make 31 movies. Can you imagine? The, he made 27 movies alone in the 60s, which is just incredible to me. Well, the other incredible thing is none of them um, lost money. Every single movie Elvis made made money, and that was the colonel. You know, because clam bacon, all of this kiss and cousins business, you know, which I love. Yeah. I don't have any problems with that. I do feel that he could have been, you know, done something really remarkable, but it would have broken the spell of Elvis. If Elvis had come in and done a more waterfront type of that, I go, or East of Eden, or, you know, whatever one of the great movies that young actors did, Monty Clift, all those cats, you know, they're brilliant. Um, if Elvis had done that, I think it would have absolutely taken away the crown of rock and roll and turned him into something, you know, an actor, singer, guy, you know, different, whole different thing, showbiz, you know. Uh, Elvis had his own sense of showbiz in Vegas, but I, those those uh, movies never lost money. And, of course, people had, you know, but it's so incredibly stupid to look back, and you're a critic, Robert Crisco, one of these other idiots, looking back and saying, <laughs> Elvis should have done this, Elvis. Fuck off. <laughs> Elvis should have done this? Yeah. Are you kidding? It's Elvis Presley, you know? Okay? So he was fat. So, you know, he's Elvis. I mean, it's so, it's so a critique. I have a real problem with. I like Lester very much. He was great. He was Lester like, Banks. He believed in it, you know. When he was like rude about people, I, you know, I thought, okay, you know, because he really lived and breathed. And by the way, every one of them want to be a rock star. Why else would they do it? I use Chris Gar as the as the worst example of journalistic nonsense because they're proving their own vocabulary. And if you read this stuff, you know, you'll see there are great writers about rock and roll, Peter Goralnik, Greil Marcus, that have created incredible books. But some of these things you read about, you know, I have a daily radio show for seven years, and I've been playing this music three hours a day for seven years. And I, I look up and the songs that I don't know, I research. And it, invariably, Chris Gow has said, this sucks. Fool on the Hill from the Beatles, awful. What can you say to somebody like that? You know, I mean, and here he is 
Now, on Wikipedia, as an example of what the music is, how dare that concept even exist? Music is yours. You decide whether you like David Lee Roth or whether you like, you know, Luciano Pavarotti or Luciano Pavarotten. <laughs> opera star. I mean, fuck off. You had your own in the movie. You had your own sort of uh, issues with Nick Kent, the famous British. I love Nick Kent. <laughs> Nick Kent was great, but he was another saucy public school boy who thought he knew everything, you know, and then got strung out on heroin. Mm. As you know, the, the the thing is, is that you're either the real thing or you or you're not. I think if you know, there are two factions here. There's the observer. And there's the participant. Mm. If you're participating as an artist, that's one thing. If you're observing and writing about whole other deal, got nothing to do with it. It's your opinion. When people say, ah, you know, Michael, your first man was so underrated. I go, by whom? Mm. And who cares? Right. Well, yeah, but Peter Frampton should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. What is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Who's doing the decision, the, the, making these decisions of who should be anywhere? It's all hyperbole and, and an absurdity. And I say so whenever I need to on the radio. If somebody says so-and-so is underrated or so-and-so is overrated, fuck off. Ratings mean nothing. It's you. Do you dig it? Are you enjoying it as a listener? And, and that's what I've learned over the years. You know, little Eva... Take Little Eva, who was a singer who did a song called The Locomotion. She had a couple of hits. Unbelievable voice. To, you know, describe her as uh, uh, underrated is an absurdity. She had two songs out, you know, that were fabulous. Why should we put these people in different little blocks of rated, underrated, superb, bad, good, you know, silly, should never have done that. Oh, they should never have broken up. What do you know about the internal relationships? Of people? They should never have broken. I bet you're saying that about your parents. Hmm. Yeah, you know, sure. It's, yeah. it's a personal thing is the point I'm trying to make. Well, it, it's an amazing point. And, and I'll say on a, on a related note, part of the reason that I love the Underground Garage so much and your program is because you are presenting important music that's, that is beyond category. And because I'm a Gen X kid, I'm 52. So I grew up in the 70s. I was born in 67, and the Turtles and the Association are in the air, and Sonny and Cher, and of course the Beatles. But then FM American Radio in the 70s was the same as as 95.5 KLOS is today. It was the same Door song. It's the same Led Zeppelin song. It's the same Beatles song. They never broke the the barriers. And so we were fed a, a very specific stream of music, and you really had to go find things. And the great thing about the underground garage is you're able to weave in all these different genres of music, but it's just a celebration of authentic and emotional music. So that's why I say I love when you can get from the chiffons to the clash in three songs, because in my brain, that makes total sense. For corporate radio, they would never do that. They would never go locomotion by Little Eva into a Ramones song. But the Ramones were just doing that stuff because they loved that music. And that's why that's why the Underground Garage is so personal to me. And I love it so much. Well, we should write everything you just said down <laughs> and send it to Stephen Van Zandt. And he will go, yeah, that's right. 
Because everything you said is precisely correct. You know, uh, there are so many important in, um, artists that people have never heard. Yeah. And for me, also on top of that, artists that, that um, you know, because Stephen put it all together, you know. That yes. whole playlist of that music that you hear, Stephen put together. He created that, and we interpret that. But on top of all of that is the people that made that record, the producer of that record, the guy who wrote that record, the guy who arranged the horns on that record, the guy who swept the fucking dirt off the... Anybody that was involved in those songs we mentioned, you know, we talk about. We talk about the abstract, you know, what happened in that room to make that music. Because my whole thing is anybody that's in that room is responsible for that song. So yeah. when you get into the whole difficulties of rock and roll bands breaking up because the, the writer of the song is living in Bel Air, you know, or the, you know, on top of the castle, the castle on top of the hill, you know, and the, the bass player is not, you know, and they break up. All the great bands, Doors, U2, etc., um, you know, share the publishing. And that's a whole other discussion. But Little Stevens Underground Garage is what the one word that you use, which absolutely sums it up, is authenticity. That music is as real as it gets. I mean, the temptation, you listen to the temptations and the, and the you know, the, the lyrical brilliance of, of Motown, Smokey, William Mickey Stevenson, Stevie Wonder, all these people that wrote these songs, Marvin Gaye, unbelievable lyrics, you know, and Mick is, a, is an incredible lyricist. People don't even really listen to what he's saying because he's so powerful and so potent uh, as a frontman that you don't even listen. But there's so many brilliant uh, lyricists that are overlooked, you know, uh, because their power and their you know vibe is so strong. You know, so yeah, we dig dig really deep and 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 play the music. And you guys that don't have Sirius XM. I highly suggest that you do, because not only do we have a great channel, but there's 160 channels. Bruce has been doing this wonderful COVID um, show, Bruce Springsteen, and just choosing songs that uh, are related to the difficulties of today. There's a lot of stuff you can do with music, you know, that um, is not done on terrestrial radio. No, it's the great uniter. And, you know, uh, to, to your point about terrestrial radio, Jonesy's Jukebox was pro profoundly important for me because I because of my age and, and the music that I'm drawn to, I'm punk. No, he has I, the I, best I, taste. I mean, he has taste as flawless rock. You know, flawless. He loves all sorts of different music. Like when we did that record, uh, I was in you know Checker Pass with him for a couple of years, and and we did. Uh, Are you sure Hank done it this way? Which Waylon Jennings did, and Steve was the one the, all over it. You know, I mean, his his view of music is impeccable. Yeah. And not only that, this guy is, for me, I call it physical genius. Because when we, you know, he lived with me and Miss Pamela and our kid, and, and it, reading and writing was not really capable of, you know. And I realized that, so what? You know, what is intellectual? What does that mean, you know, that you can quote Moby Grape? Yeah. yeah. I mean, Moby Dick, of course. <laughs> but I don't think you can say Dick on the radio anymore. Um, you know, so he was just this really brilliant man and brought it to the radio. And man, Jones's jukebox, just, he doesn't do it anymore. No. But I, I have to say, the, the, just to sit there, because I'm a collector, he'll always play a song I've never heard, and which I just, that's such a thrill for me. And I also just love the image you were talking about, you know, the East End of London and working class kids. I love the image of that working class Steve Jones as a little kid 
stealing equipment from the spiders of Mars, you know, yeah. going to that Mott the Hoople show and, and walking out with a microphone. No, it wasn't that. It was Bowie and um, Cookie and Steve went to the show two nights. Uh-huh. Bowie. First night they go, they go up in the gods, they call it in the, in the theater, you know, where, they, where they, all the lights are. They, 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 they quietly went up there. Everybody left. The guard on the stage, where all the equipment was on the stage, the guard fell asleep in the front row of the theater. Steve and Paul come down on the ladder, and they go on there, and they have a huge fucking pair of scissors, and they cut all the cables, they grab the mics, they grab the abs, they, their buddy Danny in the van, in the, in the outside, backstage, you know, but, and they get all the gear, and they put it, and who was created what band was created with bowie's equipment the sex pistols it's amazing I mean, now, if, if you begin your career stealing ziggy stardust gear i think this is fucking historic <laughs> you know and i it's just and his life has been i mean his book is great lonely boy i don't know if you read it but it's so good it is so good and and him he's in my documentary and he's so sweet you know yeah and I love this guy. First and foremost, just standing next to him playing. I had Clem Burke on drums and Steve playing guitar. I, dude, yeah. some nights we were the greatest band in the world. We made a record that was questionable, but my God, live. It was like, you know, but it was a drug band. It was difficult for everybody. And, you know, we went through a lot. And Steve's gone through a lot. And I've gone through a lot. And we still, still you know, speak a lot. <laughs> Yeah, I love him with all my heart, and well, I'm super proud of him, and super proud. Well, he's uh, he, he's a huge influence on me as a music fan, so that's all I have to say about that. All right, let me just say one thing. I had, We had a whole... We've got Michael Debar today. We don't need to delve so much into Elvis, but we're going to wrap things up here, and I'm just going to read one final uh, blurb about the king of rock and roll. By the end of 1967, the flow of formulaic films, assembly line soundtracks, and the explosion of modern rock took their toll a bit on Presley's career. The soundtrack for the movie Clambake registered record low sales for a Presley album and drastic action had to be taken. Recorded in June of 68 in Burbank, Presley's NBC television special, simply called Elvis, aired on December 3rd. Later known as the 68 Comeback Special, the show featured songs performed with a band in front of a small audience. This was Presley's first live performance since 1961. The live segments featured Presley dressed in black leather and performing in an uninhibited style reminiscent of his early days. The show captured 42% of the total viewing audience that night and was NBC's highest rated program that season. Finally, the success of that comeback special led to an extended residency at the International Hotel in Vegas and a string of highly profitable tours. On January 14, 73, Presley gave the first concert by a solo artist to be broadcast around the world. This was his Aloha from Hawaii special. Years of prescription drug abuse severely compromised his health and of course we all know Elvis died on August 16th 1977 at his Graceland estate and he was just 42 years old any final thoughts uh, about Elvis fame is the worst drug you can take wow fame will kill you fame 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 not a good thing man 
you know, when people adore you like that, it is extremely, either you disappear and become a monk and never, you know, be around people, or you really, really have to get a, a hold of it. I mean, here's a guy who went to see Nixon wearing a cape, you know. And, and I. And, and a, or constantly and yeah. with a gun, you know. But the thing is about the comeback special, that was one of the greatest things I've ever seen, you know, and I, I'm sure everybody of that time, you know, can remember, you know, going through Clambeck. It's so funny that I should mention Clambeck and, and that's, you know. A lot of this stuff, by the way, the early Elvis of these uh, DJs and stuff saying it's no good for country and all that. Are you kidding me? When That's All Right Mama came out, it was immediate success. It just took a little bit of time for people to understand it, you know. But, I mean, when, when Dewey Phillips in Memphis played That's All Right Mama, which was the first song released by Sam Phillips on Sun Records, the world went crazy. So he was very used to that. So he's exhausted. He's doing the movies. He's, uh, he's having an affair with Anne Margaret and every, whoever he wants, you know, and it's difficult. It's Hollywood. It's a guy from Memphis, Tennessee with very little education, you know, and now he's Elvis. Who's Elvis? And even he didn't know. It's something that you just don't know. You don't yeah. know what they're doing, why they love you so much. You go to the bathroom, you know, you you look at yourself in the mirror and go, oh, God, you know, it's just a, even Elvis, you know. So it's a dreadful, difficult thing to have faces looking at you like that. And uh, to that degree, it drives you mad. It drove him mad. It drove him to drugs and trying to anesthetize these feelings. And that killed him. I, I, I often think about Elvis's time here in Los Angeles because I love this city so much. I know it so well, and I know what it's like to have money here, and I know what it's like not to have money here. Uh, I, I just imagine him up at that house up in the Truesdale Estates, and you know, I wondered what, was Elvis even able to come down to the strip and see the birds at Ciro's, or was he ever able to to participate in in true life in Los Angeles? Do you know what I mean? No, of or course was, not. There was no right. true life for Elvis. Yeah, so maybe right. if Elvis goes, he's not going to go to Ralph's and say, um, "Do you have like uh, any salmon?" <laughs> How are the cucumbers? Uh, good. Okay, let me just let me have a couple of lemons and uh, some uh, whole wheat bread. Okay. <laughs> wait, wait, he's Elvis. What is he going to do? Right, he's fucking Elvis. You know, it's impossible. I remember he went to Rodney's. He went to Rodney's one night. Rodney Bingenheimer, ladies and gentlemen, out there. Yep. L.A. hero introduced David Bowie to the world and many other acts and is now on Little Stevens Underground Garage on the weekends, the great Rodney Bingenheimer. We used to go to his club in 72, man. It was unbelievable vibe. But Elvis went there. Club was tiny, size of your living room. And Rodney had a red, you know, <laughs> the red velvet rope with this, and one little table, you know. And uh, Elvis went one night, um, you yeah. know. And so that's like the only time I've ever, I know he used to drive around and sort of just look at the world, but you can imagine how difficult it was for this man. Oh, I, 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 I can't. I, I, one day of his life uh, would have killed me. One day of your life in 1972 would probably kill me too. Uh, I want to bring it back to Rodney because I did want to ask you about the English disco days. Uh, there's a great documentary about Rodney, the mayor of Sunset Strip, uh, another Zelig character, if you will, uh, for people who don't know who Rodney Bingenheimer is. But that I just, I just love the, the images of that you can find online of Rodney's English disco and you know all these giant stars hanging out in this tiny, tiny club on yeah. sunset you know i think in the in the documentary in the rodney documentary you go the vip section was next to the door <laughs> it's know? tiny but it's full of led zeppelin 
you yeah. know, I mean, all four members, and uh, you know, it was like that. And I, I, I would, we would go, Silverhead would go there every night, you know, when we played the whiskey. I mean, the whole thing was whiskey at go-go. When we got off the plane for the first time in 1972, Rodney arrived because he'd read all the British press and Nick Cannon, you know, had written about us and blah, blah, blah. So we arrived at LAX. There's a fleet of cars of the most beautiful girls you've ever seen in your life. And they followed our, you know, humble van to the Hollywood, you know, to the Hyatt Hotel on, on Sunset Boulevard. And that was it. Rodney came with a tribe and that tribe stayed with you all week. Wow. So we played the whiskey every night and then we go back to the hotel with like 20, 30, 40 incredible, beautiful, gorgeous, androgynous creatures roaming <laughs> because there was no security, dude. I mean, it was like uh, it made ancient Rome look like, you know, green blats. <laughs> you know, I was, <laughs> you know, I, and that's a deli for you guys, you know, in, in L.A. But it was uh, for old people to have like salami. Um, but, uh, you know, so it was an incredible time with no security. So therefore, people could come and go as they want, if you're part the pun, you know. And that's when I met Miss Pamela um, with the GTOs and Frank Zappa's whole thing. And, you know, I, I know you're very good friends with Ahmet, give him my best. I was with uh, his mother when um, Gail's water broke with Ahmet. Oh, that's... <laughs> I cannot. Oh my God! Wow, that is uh, that's. I cannot wait to tell him that. We well, were standing by the swimming pool in the, in the house, right? Me, Gail, and Miss P, and um, and her water broke, and it was armor. Yeah, how about that? So I've known him quite some time. I've known him when he was liquid. <laughs> that's, oh wow! You know, people. This is. Um, I've had a lot of amazing guests on this particular show, but. Um, for the last hour of my life, I've had, I've been in rock school. I've been in rock school with the the unbelievable Michael Daybar. We I could talk to you for a full week, but I'm not gonna uh, I'm not gonna bother you any further. Oh, it's uh, not I, a bother. It's a delight. You know so much about what you what you're here for, and that's terribly important. Otherwise, you're jipping the audience, you know. And you don't. You know what you're talking about. You know which questions to ask at what time and what pace, you know. And 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 that's lovely for me because I can fly, you know, when I, I know. That the person interviewing me is ill, uh, you know, knows what time it is, and you definitely have the right watch on. Well, uh, Michael, gratitude is the attitude, and I am is I'm profoundly grateful uh, for you today for spending this time with me. Oh, please, fantastic! Uh, do you have a favorite Elvis song that we could play out uh, the show with? Or I think that, that yeah. Let me think. I, I think his latest flame, because his latest flame is Elvis, you know, appealing to everybody. And, uh, you know, listen, we could go back and go pick some raw, hillbilly, brilliant, you know, Elvis was the greatest singer. You could sing anything. I'd like to get something off the gospel album. But his latest flame has has a real burning fabulousness to it. So why don't we go out with that? Fantastic. Everybody, you have to right now, just go to your computer, go to Amazon, go to Amazon Prime. iTunes, buy, baby. Uh, iTunes. And iTunes as well. And, and download Michael Debar. Who do you want me to be? Directed by the great J. Elvis Weinstein. And of course, 
MDB on LSUG, as he often says during the show. You must, you must, you must, you must. Sirius XM channel 21. It is required uh, listening. And to the rest of you listening out there, we are growing exponentially. So don't forget to like, subscribe, leave us reviews on Apple. We absolutely love that. And so until the next time, cats and kittens. A very old friend came by today. Telling everyone in town Of the love that he just found And Marie's the name Of his latest flame He talked and talked And I heard him say That she had the longest, blackest hair The prettiest green eyes anywhere And Marie's the name